Chimera by Phil Gong. Read by Dan Snellgrove. Chapter 14 The Souvenir Society. The metamorphs turned and ran from the cave into a tunnel. The two boys sprinted after them, dodging debris and geysers of stinking water. The tunnel came down behind them, driving them onwards. At last, the violent vibrations ceased, and slowing finally, the carousel stallion waited for Kip and Jamie to catch up. Nobody wants you here, it told them, as exhausted the two boys flopped to their knees. At the very least, disguise your elsewhere lights. You won't be safe otherwise. Kip watched the carousel stallion gallop away. He looked at Jamie and saw he was close to tears. Kip dug his fingers into the tunnel wall and pulled from it a moist chunk, which he rubbed between his palms to make a sticky paste. Here he said, daubing Jamie's cheeks with it, using the paste to cover up the bright golden chinks of the other boys' elsewhere light. What about you? asked Jamie, and for a moment Kip was puzzled. But then he remembered his own elsewhere light, which he couldn't see, but others assured him was there. Their camouflage completed, the two boys continued along the tunnel, until they found themselves on a curving pathway overlooking a circular quarry, home to what looked like a series of giant ant hills, vast cones of junk formed into high-rise dwellings. Kip and Jamie looked at each other. With their faces caked in mud, they looked like camouflage soldiers preparing for battle. I don't want to go down there, said Jamie, looking down at the city his eyes huge and fearful in their mask of dirt. Kip agreed, but what choice did they have? When at last they reached the quarry floor, the two boys sneaked through the narrow network of streets running between the bases of the great cones. They kept to the shadows, unnerved by the silence of the city. Nothing chattered or laughed, Everything was a dismal grey-brown colour, the atmosphere humid and thin. Kip craved fresh air and fluffy white clouds. His hand went to his pocket to find the scrap of blue wallpaper. He tried to see the sky, the garden with its sunflowers, the view from the branches of the climbing tree. He waited for the magician to take his place on the stage and produce silken reams of sunlit moments from his pockets. But the magician didn't come. This dark, desolate city made imagining such things impossible. Or was it the fugue, sifting darkness over his memories like soot? The two boys walked in silence, their mood despondent. They found a deserted alleyway in which to rest. Kip remembered the chocolates he'd picked up from the stalactite in the bedrock catacombs. He presented them to Jamie. They're a bit squashed, he apologised. Jamie looked longingly at the chocolates, but shook his head. Go on, Jamie. 
We need to keep our strength up. Jamie put his head in his hands and gave a small, desperate sigh. I know you're worried about your brother, but I don't think he's in danger exactly, Kip suggested. Attica said Madame Chartreuse takes children because they're special to her. Special like treasure. You might lock treasure up, but you keep it safe. Jamie thought about this. Kip thought about it too, only he was thinking about the old silver locket he'd lost in the garden and how everything that happened after that was his own stupid fault. And now he gave a small, desperate sigh of his own. Jamie took a chocolate finally and unwrapped it, eyeing it with relish. He popped it in his mouth and chewed. He made an mmming sound, followed quickly by a startled gasp as a small, sturdy-looking pig appeared suddenly through a concealed trapdoor at the two boys' feet. The pig was baby blue, decorated with white and yellow daisies. It had big, round eyes, long eyelashes, a neat button-like snout and a spiralling tail, which twitched as the pig sniffed out the remaining chocolates in Kip's hand. With quick, wet licks of its tongue, the pig proceeded to gobble them out of his palm. The sensation made Kip snort with laughter until Jamie said, Kip, you're elsewhere light. Kip couldn't see the radiance emanating from his hand where the pig had licked clean its coating of mud. But Jamie could. And so too could the metamorphs gathering at the entrance to the alleyway. What are we going to do? Jamie hissed as the creatures advanced. Exactly what I tell you to do, instructed Sir Regulus, who popped his head through the trapdoor too. Down here, quickly! The two boys and the pig dropped into a low-ceilinged bunker. Sir Regulus closed the trapdoor quietly and instructed everyone to remain silent. Above their heads came the drag of footsteps and muffled buzz of voices. More agonising seconds passed as the weight of metamorphs caused dust to drift from the ceiling. What were you thinking? Sir Regulus scolded the pig as soon as the voices died away. How many more times do I have to tell you not to use the secret entrance as a shortcut into the city? Oh, you must abide by the rules, or risk exposing all of us. Rolls, 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 complained the pig. I'm sick of rolls. Yours, his. You draw too much attention to yourself, Bertram. You were even seen skateboarding again. Oh, how can I take care of you if you don't do as I say? I didn't ask you to save me. With that, the pig ran into a narrow tunnel leading from the bunker. I'm sorry about that, said Sir Regulus with a sigh. Oh, Bertram is very impulsive. It's what comes of being an object interruptus. An object what? asked Kip. An interrupted object. Something lost to Chimera before it could carry out its prime purpose in the elsewhere world. More dust filtered from the ceiling. The voices had returned. They left the bunker by the same tunnel Bertram had used, the two boys following Sir Regulus through a series of tight, narrow corridors, 
until they came to a large cave, illuminated by strings of fairy lights suspended from the ceiling in swags. The cave walls were papered with an elaborate mosaic of colourful fragments, scraps of book covers, magazines, newspapers, old film posters, cereal packets and washing powder boxes, exotic-looking postcards, Christmas cards, birthday cards and wedding invites checkered the cave with images of tropical palms, snow scenes and bright balloons. One wall was papered entirely with a collage of creased photographs of birthday parties, sunny sports days and red-faced families sitting around empty dinner plates with paper hats on their heads. Arranged on the floor of the cave were tea chests and old suitcases dotted with labels reading New York, Milan, Paris and Tokyo. Steeples of books teetered in corners, their pages fat with damp. The cave was dominated by a series of pedestals made from stacked crates and leather-bound books. On top of each were large glass domes, inside of which were various objects. Beneath one was an arrangement of frayed silk flowers, and under another a cracked yellow teapot. A third glass case was home to a collection of bent spoons. A fourth contained an oily arrangement of cogs. Under the fifth was a large sword, its blade broad and its handle encrusted with gems. What is this place? asked Kip. The museum room, <laughs> replied Sir Regulus. And all this stuff? Salvage from the plummet pit. Sir Regulus approached the display case containing the sword. I come here to remember. We all do. We? The Souvenir Society. <laughs> Wallitzer would have us exiled if he ever were to learn of the museum room's existence. Wallitzer? inquired Jamie. Our ruler. The fairground horse, surmised Kip. Sir Regulus nodded. What is the Jet Semelite decree? asked Jamie. Thou shalt not remember. All mention of the elsewhere world is forbidden here. But why? Hmm. Before Wurlitzer set down the Jet Semelite decree, Flotsam Potshole was a dangerous, chaotic place. A restless, frustrated city. Every day, metamorphs would try and escape the rubbish heap, driven to act by their memories of purpose and belonging. And every day, more metamorphs would be lost to the shovelists and to the bombardment compartments of the Odds and Bods Abattoir. There was so much death back then, so much loss. In outlawing the past, Wurlitzer gave us a way to endure the present, protecting us not simply from the horrors of the dismantlers, but from something worse. From hope. But you come to this place anyway, said Kip. You'd rather be unhappy. Their conversation was ended by the sound of something approaching. 
A shoal of hot water bottles entered the museum through a curtained doorway and rippled along the floor like manta rays. Their necks opened and closed like mouths, making soft sucking sounds. A large, chaise-long come sea lion with a skin of deep cherry-coloured damask followed them. The sea lion's whiskers hung down from the creature's snub-nosed face like loose embroidery threads. Next to arrive was an adult-sized skeleton wearing a white, rather stained laboratory coat. With a small cry of disgust, Jamie noticed the top of the skeleton's skull was missing, exposing its grey, pinkish brain. Now Bertram entered the museum room, running excitably between the exhibits. You see, he announced proudly, I told you! It is true, exclaimed the shoal of rubber-hot water bottles, their watery, wobbly voices speaking as one. The skeleton walked towards the two boys on its bandy legs, bringing its yellow skull close to their faces. Now, now, said Sir Regulus, they're not exhibits. Why don't we postpone further questions until we've been properly introduced? To the two boys, he said, I'm sorry, but I don't know your names. I'm Kip Finnegan, and this is Jamie Bean. And we are the Souvenir Society, said Bertram. Some of us, anyway. Soon we'll rise up and show Wurlitzer what we think of his Jetsamalite decree. I thought I'd made my feelings clear, Bertram. We are not an army. Sir Regulus pointed at the undulating shoal of hot water bottles. This is the gam. By way of a greeting, the hot water bottles sucked gently at the boys' hands with their wide, rubbery mouths. In a clipped and quacking tone, the skeleton said, Dr. Ossifer, at your service. It's fascinating to meet you. The chaise-long sea lion heaved her portly upholstered body before the two boys and said, rather grandly, Clarissa Palanquin, how, 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 how do you do? Tell me, said Dr. Ossifer, what's the devil are the two of you doing all the way down here? The oligarchy were too busy fighting amongst themselves to listen to what we had to say. They accused us of spying for Madame Chartreuse. They accused us of trying to steal the clavis, whatever that is. The clavis is a powerful artefact, bequeathed to Singopolis by St. Anthony himself, explained Dr. Ossifer. As long as it remains within the boundaries of the city, the city is safe from Madame Chartreuse and her henchmen. Safe, yes, but not free, said Sir Regulus. There is precious little difference between Thingopolis and Flotsam Pothole, for both are prisons in their way. Why doesn't the oligarchy do something about Madame Chartreuse? asked Kip. Like what? asked the Gam. Fight back, of course. Against her, said Dr. Ossifer. Kip nodded. There was a bully at my old school called Simon Stinkfingers. He ruled the playground, stealing dinner money, dishing out Chinese burns. Nobody did anything about it. Everyone was scared of him. Everyone except Sprat. Sprat? asked Clarissa. 
my best friend. She challenged him to a game of conkers in the playground. The whole school came to watch and no one believed she could do it. No one believed she could do it. A girl. But she did. She smashed Stinkfinger's conker into smithereens. Kip brought his hands together with a satisfying smack. No one was scared of him after that. <laughs> a playground game of conkers is one thing, said Clarissa. But Madame Chartreuse has great power and agents everywhere. No one would dare to fire The gam agreed. Atticus did, said Kip proudly. After the fourth retelling of Atticus's heroic encounter with the concrete menagerie, Sir Regulus insisted the Souvenir Society find the two boys something to eat and drink. Dr Ossifer sorted through his own personal collection of biscuit tins, pop bottles and jam jars, presenting them with an unlikely menu of pickle, chocolate bourbons and cherry aid. At first, they were reluctant to taste the food offered them, unsure of how old it was or where it might have come from. The skeleton assured them they were in no danger, giving a lengthy lecture on the subject of sell-by dates and shrink-wrapping. The two boys nibbled cautiously at the soft biscuits and sipped politely from the bottle of flat fizz, their hunger and thirst soon outweighed their initial hesitancy, and they devoured the lot, including the pickle, which they ate with their fingers. You've been very kind, Kip told the members of the Souvenir Society after they'd eaten, but Jamie and I can't stay here. Madame Chartreuse has got Jamie's brother. We need to find him. The whereabouts of her collection is a closely guarded secret, said Sir Regulus. He hesitated. <sighs> Even from her most trusted agents. Its location will be somewhere inaccessible. Some remote, forbidding place. <laughs> there is one who might be able to help, suggested Dr. Rossifer, his brain pulsing alarmingly. An ancient metamorph by the name of the Sin King. Sin King? Jamie said unhappily. Rumor has it. He has made his home out in the Badlands, beyond Singopolis. The Badlands, said Jamie. Oh, great. We'll find him, said Kip, confidently. But first, we have to find our way out of here. Find your way out, said Wurlitzer, as he entered the museum room. There is no way out of odds and buds. <laughs> <laughs>